Our text is uh, Psalm 84 this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 84. In the heading it says, To the choir master according to the Gitteth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear God's word. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, as they, they make it a place of springs, the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. All the Psalms are beautiful in their own way, but Psalm 84 certainly stands out. And Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 84 one of the choicest of the collection. He said it is the pearl of, of Psalms and one of the most sweet of the Psalms of Peace. And he includes Psalm 84 in the same category as Psalm 23, Psalm 103, Psalm 119, and Psalm 51, which you, I'm sure, recognize um, undoubtedly are some of the most well-known, most studied, and appreciated psalms in the entire Psalter. And these psalms were written to be the songs of God's people. And if we think about the psalms and hymns as we sing them today, it's obvious there are some that are more popular than others. We all have our favorites, and hopefully your preferences are not based on a superficial reason like, well, I like the tune. Uh, we ought to prefer certain hymns because they lead us into the worship of God better than others. We ought to judge our worship songs on the basis of such things as how well they communicate the truth of God's word and how well they lead us to have the right emotions concerning God and his word. For when you compare songs that are very worshipful with those that are just average or worse, it's apparent to me that it takes great skill to compose a song for the worship of God. It requires, yes, the gift of music, but it requires even more than that, a heart that is attuned to God, a heart that loves the Lord. It's no surprise that many of the Psalms were written by David, who God himself called a man after his own heart. And yet there were other writers of the Psalms. This Psalm 84 was written by the sons of Korah. Um, the author of this Psalm speaks in, in verse 10 of himself as a doorkeeper in the house of his God, which confirms to us that this is written from the perspective of a son of Korah, which I shall talk about their work uh, more in a moment. 
But that this is a, a psalm of the sons of Korah is a very interesting fact and an important element in grasping the full significance of this psalm. I've taken the title, the, the theme of this morning's message as the godly attitude of the Korahites. And point one is, who are these sons of Korah? And related to that is, what is their job in the tabernacle? That's point two. And then we will consider their godly attitude their attitude, the reasons behind it, and then finally we will consider our response. For their, that is the, the Korahites' attitude is a challenge to us in our relationship with the Lord. So first, who are these Korahites? Well, the Korahites, or the sons of Korah, were descendants of the tribe of Levi. This was the tribe that was set apart by God to do the work related to the worship of God's people. The Levites were the, one who, uh, were the ones who would take down the tabernacle as well as to set it up. They were the ones who offered the sacrifices, the ones who read the law, who would lead the people in the singing of the psalms. They were the priests. They were the musicians. They were the doorkeepers of the tabernacle. And Korah was one of the descendants of Levi. There's some Old Testament history that ought to come to mind when you hear the name Korah. I'm referring to what is commonly called Korah's Rebellion. And I want to read of that rebellion from Numbers chapter 16. If you want to take your Bibles for a moment, I want to read from uh, Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Iliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Moses heard it, he fell on his face. He said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And I remind you that the Lord judged Korah and those who rebelled with him. And God opened up the ground and swallowed up Dathan and Abiram and their families and all who had conspired with Korah against Moses and Aaron. And as for those 250 men who took up censers, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. And the censers were picked up out of the flames and were hammered out into plates that were used to cover the altar. 
And God said that those plates were to be a memorial to the children of Israel, that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should draw near to burn incense to the Lord. And if I were to summarize what happened between Aaron and Korah, it was a conflict due to jealousy, ultimately selfishness. Because Korah and Aaron were both sons of Levi, both had been set apart to the service of worship, but Aaron and his sons had the superior duties of the priesthood, at least that's how Korah viewed it. Korah wanted to be one of the priests. He wanted to be one of those out front doing what he considered to be the important parts of worship. He wanted the prestige and he wanted the recognition. He wanted to wear fancy robes and be directly involved in the ceremonies of the sacrificial system. And these things become clearer when you find out that the main duty of Korah's branch of the Levites was to be the doorkeepers of the tabernacle. Now, it's true that one branch of Korah's family, known as the sons of Heman, that was involved in the music of worship, and certainly leading the music with instruments and a choir, that was an important duty and probably one that was well appreciated by the congregation. And yet that duty was shared with two other Levitical family branches. So even in the music, Korah's family didn't really stand out. No, Korah felt like his family got the short end of the stick since their primary duty was that of being the gatekeepers, the doorkeepers, the porters of the tabernacle. I did some study of what their work involved, and I didn't actually find very much. Um, what I learned right away is that a gate or doorkeeper would stand at the doorway of the tabernacle and would guard it. And I don't know exactly what that involved, but I did read about how one of the purposes was to make sure that unclean Gentiles did not enter God's house. But in trying to learn more, I found out that in trying to translate the Hebrew, instead of the word doorkeeper or gatekeeper, that sometimes the English word porter has been used, which is a word that comes from the Latin and it means to carry. And so in more recent times, a porter is one who carries a traveler's luggage. You probably associate that word porter with trains, and yes, uh, porters would wait on passengers who are traveling by train. And a porter can also be a, a person employed to do routine cleaning. And this is probably why James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this psalm, titles this psalm, rather interestingly, the Psalm of Janitors. Um, certainly Korah did not carry luggage. He didn't wait on passengers. But he and his sons were porters or janitors in the sense that they were the ones who took care of the everyday practical needs surrounding the tabernacle. They were the ones who opened the gates of the court of God's house in the morning and closed them at night. And from what I, from what I also learned in my study of what they did, they were in many ways restricted in what they could do because only the priests were allowed to touch, even to clean the vessels of the tabernacle and later temple. And so pretty much the main duty the Korahites was to carry the tabernacle as well as to set it up and to take it down. Any other duties were assigned to them by Aaron and his sons, which probably was also a point of contention. And then when later God's house was no longer a tent that needed to be carried, but a permanent structure, the temple, it's less clear what was the duty of the Korahites, but they must have been given various duties as the maintenance men, the janitors, the, the gophers, 
of the Lord's house. And so in some, their work was a humble work, but of course also an important work and even a necessary work for the maintenance of the worship of God. So maybe now you can better understand what is going on when back in Numbers, Korah confronts Aaron and his family of priests. Korah is apparently tired of being a common laborer, of feeling like he's underneath the priests. And I think we can all understand something of where he's coming from. Korah was a descendant of Levi in, in the same way Aaron and his sons were, and yet Korah and his family, they pretty much had the thankless jobs. And there are many people in similar situations today. There's the little guy, the guy behind the scenes, who may very well be the one who is vital to the whole operation working smoothly, and yet he's overlooked, he's ignored. And for that reason, he may feel used, perhaps even abused. For the Korahites, there was little earthly glory in essentially being the pack mules to carry God's tent. And it is this background knowledge that gives them great significance to what the sons of Korah here are saying in Psalm 84, because this psalm is written, you understand, by Levites who, despite their humble service, are happy and they are content. And they express how their souls long even faint for God. They long to be in God's house because they love God. They love the things of God. They love the worship of God. And they love their work because it is a privilege and a blessing to be associated and to be a part of the work of God's house. Now think of the contrast of this attitude to that of their forefather Korah. Korah was an ungodly, unbelieving man whose heart was set on his desires for recognition. He did not love God, and he did not consider it a privilege to work for God. His life purpose was not to glorify God. His purpose was to glorify self. And he was prideful and self-centered, and uh, this revealed itself in his discontentment with his lot in life. And the spirit of, con uh, of competition erupted in his heart because of covetousness. And so what a wonderful thing it is, then, you see, to see in this psalm Korah's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren forsaking the sins of their father. The story of Korah's rebellion is retold in Numbers chapter 26 of how Dathan and Abiram and Korah and his company were killed. And in the original account in number 16, concerning Dathan and Abiram, we are told that they were standing by their tents with their wives and children when the earth opened and swallowed them up. But in Numbers 26, 11, we are told, nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. Korah died, but the children of Korah did not die. God spared the children of Korah. Now, why? Well, of course, the ultimate reason lies in the sovereign will of plan and plan of God, who will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Of course, none of the children of these rebels deserved to be spared, and all of us are sinners, deserve the wrath and curse of God, but God chose to spare the sons of Korah. As to the why, we can at least say that it was apparently in God's plan to save them by his grace. It was God's gracious plan to elect some of the children of this rebel Korah unto salvation. And so it's an amazing testimony, really, to, in reading this psalm, it's an amazing testimony to the transforming power of God's grace to read here of the godly attitude of these children of this very rebellious man. Talk about a night and day difference between their attitude 
and that of their forefather. And describing their godly attitude in one sentence, I would say it this way, they loved God's house. Not God's house for its own sake, it wasn't the love of a physical building or tent, but the love of God's house had directly to do with a love for God, a love for the things of God, a love of the gospel, a love of the Messiah, a love of God's fellowship, a love of the worship of God. And we can see this God-centered perspective right away in the opening verses of this psalm where the psalmist speaks of the loveliness of God's tabernacle and how his soul longs and even faints for the, course, the, the courts of the Lord. And then in the final part of verse 2 explains further, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. It was a longing for fellowship with God himself that created a longing for God's house. And we can see this attitude, this perspective, uh, in various ways throughout this psalm. In uh, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist speaks of the blessedness of dwelling in God's house and there praising God. And the psalmist writes of the sparrow and the swallow who have found there a place of refuge, even a home near God's altar. And this is probably something that the psalmist had actually observed as he worked. Um, and, and he reminisces about it. Uh, if we think of the sparrow, the sparrow in the Bible is a symbol for something that is almost worthless. I mean, sparrows are about one of the most common and abundant birds there are, and we hardly give them a thought. And uh, so Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 refers to the sparrow's value when he asks, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And uh, for the psalmist, he finds meaning in the fact that a simple sparrow makes its home at God's house. And if a sparrow seeks and finds refuge at God's house, this simple, worthless sparrow, then so much more ought we to seek the Lord and to seek his house and to do so in the faith that God will protect us. For we are far more value than a sparrow. As we think of the Lord setting his love upon us, he is our covenant God, and nearer to him and he to us, we are safe from our enemies. So such thoughts must, something like this must have been the thoughts of the psalmist as he saw these sparrows congregating at the tabernacle or temple. And then there is the swallow who has even made a nest. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he explains this of the, of the swallow. He says, it's the Bible's symbol of restlessness. It's a bird that is always in the air, winging its way from point to point, from earliest glimmer of dawn to after sunset. It wearies the watcher who is trying to keep it in view. But then the time comes for it to mate and raise young, and the swallow builds a nest and settles down upon it to rest peacefully. He says, this is a picture of the soul apart from God, <clears throat> and then in God, when at last it comes to rest in him. So it seems that the psalmist, he's, he's at least noticing how this swallow finds a place of refuge, a place of peace, a place of rest there at God's house. And of course, we enjoy the peace of knowing that we are right with God, of having our sins forgiven. The sacrifices there at the tabernacle and later temple uh, point to the Messiah's atoning sacrifice for sin appeasing God's wrath and justice and bringing us into peace with God. And so the image of this swallow building a nest, a place where it can, it can find protection and peace. 
makes the psalmist think of, of how the Lord is a place of refuge for us. And then in verses 5 through 8, the psalmist's thoughts turn in a different direction, though he's still thinking about God's house. Uh, in these verses, <coughs> the psalmist is thinking about the majority of God's people who did not have the privilege of living in Jerusalem, who had to go on a pilgrimage in order to be in God's house. It seems at this point, the reference is to the, the t- actual temple. And uh, what the psalmist describes is how these people, on, they go on this journey willingly and gladly. They long to go on this journey, even though it involves struggle and difficulty and sacrifice. And their positive attitude is evident by how as they pass through the valley of Baca, literally, this was a valley of, of weeping. It was a very dry and desolate place. And yet the psalmist says they make it a place of springs. And the early rain also covers it with pools. I think this is a poetic way of describing how as they travel on their way to God's house, they're, they're not complaining. They're not growing discouraged. This dry desert is to them like a place of springs and rain-filled pools. And what explains this positive perspective? Well, it's, their focus is upon the blessings they have in God. The, the prospect of being in God's house makes the trouble and the toil worth it. Verse 7 explains they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And Dalech in his commentary explains this. He says, and whereas under ordinary circumstances, the strength of the traveler diminishes in proportion as he has traversed more and more of his toilsome road, with them it is the very reverse. They go from strength to strength, end quote. In other words, the nearer they get to God's house, the stronger they get because they are so eager to be at God's house. There's this growing anticipation of finally arriving. And what is it that these pilgrims look forward to? In, a, in particular, verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Now, naturally, they, they're probably praying for safe travel to God's house, but I think they're looking forward to praying to the Lord in his house, conversing with God as part of their fellowship with him. And then verses 9 through 12 finish out the psalm, and I find, find in these verses a summary of the spiritual experience of the psalmist while at God's house. And that's this anticipated experience that especially explains why he loves God's house. Now, verse 9, we have this prayer, Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. This is a prayer, just by way of summary, that That concerns the gospel. He's talking here about the good news of the forgiveness of sins through the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And hopefully as I explain the meaning of this verse, you can see for yourself how the gospel is here so clearly. First of all, notice that this is a prayer to God that he would consider or he would look at, inspect, literally direct his gaze toward our shield. Behold our shield. And I believe that the next part of the verse, by means of parallelism, is essentially stating the same thing in another way. And look upon the face of your anointed. So our shield, God's anointed, are the same person. And some interpreters are inclined to say that this shield and anointed one is King David. And it certainly would have been a prayer of God's people that God would look upon their king. 
idea is that he would look upon him with favor. But even if this was a prayer that concerned King David or perhaps a later king, perhaps Solomon or a later king at the time of the, of the temple, um, if it concerned um, uh, uh, one of the, the kings of Israel, well, they were types of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ is our shield. He is God's anointed one in the ultimate sense. And so it's not a stretch to say that verse 9 is about Jesus. And then we look in the context in verse 11, where it says, the Lord God is a sun and shield. Notice, God is our shield, not a mere man. It's God who is ultimately our shield. And so it's perfectly appropriate to say that verse 9 is speaking of Jesus as our shield. Jesus was no mere man. He was God. And so in this way, verse 9 matches with verse 11. God is our shield. Jesus is our shield. For as the Son of God, he is God. And then we have in verse 9 also a reference to God's anointed, which is the word for Messiah. So the end of verse 9 could just as easily be translated, look on the face of your Messiah. The one God that you have anointed to be our Savior. And then in further support of this understanding of verse 9, we have verse 10, which talks about how a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, better than a thousand indulging in the pleasures of sin as those who dwell in the tents of wickedness. And if we interpret verse 9 as a prayer for one of, of Judah's kings, I don't see how that would connect in any way with verse 10 and this desire to be in God's house. But when you understand verse 9 is having to do with Christ and with the gospel, then you understand exactly why a day in God's courts would be so wonderful because the temple and the tabernacle and all of the ceremonies were, of course, all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. And so just like in the church today, what makes it a joy to come to worship is hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us, how he is our shield and how he is our Messiah. That is what makes a day in God's courts better than a thousand elsewhere. It's because this is where Jesus Christ is. And the way that I interpret verse 9 is that we need the Messiah to be our shield because we deserve God's wrath. Um, this is the kind of protection that he's talking about. It's spiritual protection. As the psalmist thinks about his own sinfulness, he knows he's unworthy to be in God's presence. And if you understand yourselves correctly in the light of God's law, we are in trouble. By nature, we are the objects of God's wrath. And what the psalmist then is essentially praying is that God will not look upon us in our sins, but will look upon us as represented by the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And so the prayer might be something like this to paraphrase it. God, look upon the face of that one you have anointed to be the atoning sacrifice for sin, that one who is righteous. May it be that your holy gaze lands upon him rather than upon us. And in this way, we will be shielded from your wrath. Accept us for the sake of your anointed one. Why this prayer? Because the desire of the psalmist because our greatest desire in life ought to be to have fellowship with God. Fellowship that otherwise would be broken, that, that we would never have because of our sin. But 
day in the court, in, in, a day in, in God's courts, a day uh, of being reminded of our fellowship with God in Christ, a day in his presence where he is with us in his spirit, where we know him as our father and worship him as, our, as his children, a day reminding us of what God has done in Christ to save us from our sins. This is a, a day that is greater than any kind of day that the world can give us. Christ and the gospel are what drive us to want to worship. And then in verse 11, the psalmist is expounding upon the joys of knowing God. The joy of the tabernacle is being with God who is our son. That is the source of all life and blessing. And he is our shield, the one who protects us, again, from the judgment we deserve, from evil, from all harm. The psalmist goes on to say he gives favor or, or grace the Lord bestows favor or, or grace and honor. He gives favor or grace as he forgives our sins and makes us his own through the saving work of his son. And he actually gives us honor as he raises us up to the glorious position of being a member of his kingdom and, and, and children by adoption. He's a God who gives us everything that we need. And so the psalmist says there in the second part of verse 11, uh, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. <clears throat> it's not that we're saved by our works, but those who love God, who therefore free, uh, flee from their sin, will experience his blessings, have experienced his blessings, and will continue to do so. And the psalmist ends on a note of rejoicing as he speaks to his God, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Those who trust in God are blessed. You who trust in God are blessed. You are blessed because by faith you have fellowship with God. The promises of the gospel, of God being your shield, are, are yours. In the way of repentance and faith, you know Christ as your Messiah, as your shield. In Christ, you know God's grace and honor. And so we see that the sons of Korah, they loved the tabernacle and temple because there they heard. And might we add there, because of the ceremonies of the Old Testament, they saw the gospel as represented in the sacrificial system. And there they could, in a special way, praise the God that they loved. They were, re they were reminded by going there of the things that were really important in life. God and his word were precious to them. Tabernacle temple were where God had chosen to meet with his people. It's there that they especially enjoyed God's fellowship. And today we know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and temple. In John chapter 1, in the gospel of John, there we are told that Jesus literally tabernacled among us. Our translations usually say he dwelt among us. He came and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, when as the Son of God, he took on human flesh. He dwelt among us so that he could meet the requirements of God's law for us as one of us. And it's his obedience and his sacrifice upon the cross that is the basis of our fellowship with God. We no longer have to go to Jerusalem. We do not have to go to an earthly temple to offer sacrifices like the sons of Korah. And yet, it's also true that we are not yet in heaven. We are not yet experiencing direct fellowship with God. We still belong to the church on earth, 
which means that we still must seek God where he reveals himself. And God reveals himself through his word. And so like the Korahites, we ought to, to long to be where we can hear the gospel. We, we long to read the Bible ourselves. We long to be at Bible studies. We, we, we long to study the Bible in our families. And we especially ought to long to hear the word of God preached in the gatherings of God's people. We still long to come to God's house. We come to a distinct place. We come here to where we can hear the gospel and sing praises to the God that we love and we can pray. Do you have the godly attitude of the Korahites? Do you treasure God? Do you love God? Do you, do you long to enjoy his fellowship? The, the fellowship of interacting with God in prayer and praise and hearing his word. One of the things that came up in one of the exams at the, the Presbytery meeting this last week was this idea of dialogical worship. Apparently, it's something that, uh, that's fairly unique to, to the, the OPC and I'm, other, other uh, denominations as well. But in the OPC, it's a very conscious thing that in worship, there's a dialogue going on with the Lord. We are praying to God. We are singing hymns of praise to him, and then he speaks to us through his word. There's a dialogue. Uh, worship is about fellowship with God. And so we want to be where the gospel is heard, where we can hear the Lord speak to us. But if we're going to have the godly attitude of the Korahites, it means that your first love in life has to be God. You, 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 you have to love the gospel. You have to love God's worship. These things have to mean everything to you. And this may mean that your priorities may need to change. But your testimony from the heart ought to be, it's better to be in church then too, you can fill in the blank. So many things in this life that we enjoy that take our attention, whether a hobby, whether it's sports, whether it's even friends or family. But there ought to be no activity, nothing of this life that you couldn't put in that blank. It's better to be in church than to. Whatever it may be, church ought to be more important. It ought to be more precious. It ought to be a higher priority. And you also ought to be able to say, it is a privilege to serve Christ, even if I have the lowest position in all of the church. You ought to be willing and ready, even excited, to serve God no matter what form that service may take. The sons of Korah, unlike their forefather, so loved God, so loved God's house, it didn't matter that their jobs lacked prestige. If you love Christ, if you love his kingdom, you're going to be content with whatever you can do promote God's worship and the work of his church. Every job in the church is important. Every act of service for Christ is worthwhile. And if your heart is awed by God's grace in Christ forgiving your sins, then you serve Christ and you're not thinking about yourself. You're not having the mindset of Korah, but you're thinking about God and you're finding joy in serving him, such as we find here with the sons of Korah. May you have the godly attitude of the Korahites who put God and his glory first. May you have that attitude in your lives. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for 
these days of worship that you have given us. We thank you for a place of worship. We thank you that in the New Testament, yes, we don't have to go to a tabernacle or temple, but we thank you, Father, that there are still places where your people assemble and where we are able to be reminded of the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of your grace and of the honor that you give us as your people in making us your children by adoption. Father, may we be in awe of your grace. Father, we confess that we do not love your worship. It grieves our, our hearts. We, we do not love, love you and, and your worship, the gospel, Christ, as we ought. Um, Father, it grieves us that there are so many things in this life that vie for our attention and our affections. And, and uh, Father, we, we know we're called to love you with all of our being. And yet, Father, we fall short. But Father, we know you are worthy of our worship. We long uh, to be those who, who love you more, who love Christ more, who, who uh, long to be more excited about worship than we are. So, Father, be at work in our hearts, showing us the, the priorities of, of your word and the things that are really important and what really matter. And, uh, Father, we pray that we may have the, the attitude of the Korahites who see in your worship uh, the greatest things that, that, are, that are possible for us to enjoy. And we pray, Father, that we would be people of service in your kingdom and willing to take the, the low spots in terms of outward prestige. Lord, put us to use, we pray, in your service. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.